miracles that God's going to do in you and through you in coming. So, I bring you greetings from Church of the Resurrection and from Bishop Stewart. He sends his hello and his love, and uh, we think about you guys and we pray for you. Um, they're right in between services and we in at Resurrection right now, so they're having coffee while we're uh, learning the Word of God, but they'll they'll read the Word of God later. So. <laughs> Well, as I was reading um, Psalm 119, preparing for this morning, I remembered an article I read in the New York Times a couple years ago about this new field of psychology that's developing. It's called wantology, as in W-A-N-T, wantology, what I want or what I desire. And the people who are the practitioners of wantology are called wantologists, and I thought that was probably a, a little bit of a silly name, but then I remembered that we're Anglicans, and all of our names for everything are silly. <laughs> I remember when I, was first, I first started serving Eucharist, someone told me the little, the little uh, cloth that you wipe the cup with is called a purificator. And I was like, no, you got to be kidding. <laughs> and he might have been kidding. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> so when we, when we uh, moved into our new building of resurrection, we got our big baptismal font where we baptize people. It spills water all over the floor. So we had to get a squeegee to like clean it up afterwards, so I named it a squeegificator. <laughs> and it's operated by a squeegifer. So. Uh, back to wantology, but I digress. Um, so the idea with wantology is that someone would come into a wantologist's office, and they would, the wantologist would say, what do you want? What do you want out of life? And how can you get there? And how will you know when you are there? What do you want? If you were with uh, my family, the McMacken family, on vacation earlier this year, and we were driving down the highway, and our tire blew out, and it ripped the side of our car off, and it pulled all the electrical out of the engine, and the whole vehicle shut down at 70 miles an hour, you would probably hear us say something like, we just want a car that won't explode. <laughs> That's what we want right now. Or if you were hanging out with me on Wednesday um, when I was trying to feed our kids uh, lunch, you might have heard me say something like, all I want is for you to not put macaroni and cheese in your sister's hair. That's what I want. So what do you want? Do you want a job that's more fulfilling, that's more engaging, um, that you can be successful at, but that challenges you? Do you want uh, to be known, to, to have uh, deeper friendships? Do you want a family and a spouse? Do you want to just not feel as lonely as you sometimes do? I imagine someone who doesn't know what they want walking into a wontologist's office and saying, you know, nice to meet you, and the wontologist says, would you like to have a seat? And they say, I don't know. <laughs> well, do you feel like sitting? Maybe. Then go ahead. Okay, this is helping. This is really helping. I know what I want. I imagine the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 walking into a wontologist's office. And the wontologist says, what do you want? And the poet who wrote this psalm says, I want law. What? You want to study law? To you want to be a lawyer? You want to practice law? No, no, no. I want law. I want, to, I want to do it. I want to obey it. I think about it all the time. Law, decrees, rules, statutes. I want law. Really? That's, that's what you want? How will you know when you get it? Well, I, I'll have fulfilled it all in every way, diligently. That's how I know. I just I want some law. It's such a foreign want, isn't it? As I read this passage, I, I found myself a little bit unable to emotionally engage and resonate. Why is this poet so wrapped up in the law? What is it about rules and statutes and decrees 
that he finds interesting. It's kind of hard to imagine. Um, when we were getting directions for coming down here this morning, um, Bonnie was looking at the map and she said, oh, that's close to this restaurant I want to go to. Maybe we could stop there for lunch. What's the name of it? Honey butter chicken, maybe you guys know it, right? You guys ever just crave some food that you really want? Like, oh, man, I'm really, really craving that food. Well, the, the, the psalmist says he craves the word of God like that. It's like that, it's like that thing he, he really wants, but he can't have right now, but he's waiting for the next time he can taste it, and he calls it, he says, it's sweeter than honey. It's that sweet thing that I crave. Have you ever been watching a favorite show on Netflix and the episode ends and the next one starts and then the next one starts and then, and then you look up and you realize it's 4 a.m. and you've watched two and a half seasons and you realize that you have been meditating on the show day and night. <laughs> and that's how the psalmist, that's how he feels about the law. It's that sort of desire, that sort of want. There's this church father. He lived in the 7th century. His name was Bede. That's an awesome name already, but then, then he's called Bede the Venerable. So how do you get one of those titles? We need to make up one for Father Aaron, right? We'll take, we'll take suggestions later. He said this, everyone loves happiness, but few look for where to find it. Everyone loves happiness, but few ask where it is. And what the poet who wrote Psalm 119 is telling us is that happiness, blessedness, the thing that we really truly desire, our, our prayer of desire, it's found in the law, in the way of the Lord. That's where it is. Our prayer of desire, that thing we long for, that thing we want, the happiness, the blessedness, it's found in the way of the Lord. So we're going to look at Psalm 119 this morning. We're going to see... Why, why is that? Why do we find it there? And, and why do we have such a disconnect thinking about law? And it doesn't excite us. We're going to look at that this morning. But if you were, if you were tracking as we read Psalm 119, you heard the psalmist say things like, Do not let me put, be put to shame, O Lord, and teach me. And so as we turn to look at the psalm, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to show us. Because without the Lord showing us what this means, we won't understand. So would you pray with me? Lord, you tell us to seek your word, to, to love your way. And we just confess that we don't always know what that means, and we don't always do it. So we humble ourselves now, Lord. Help us understand your way. Help us understand you. Teach us, Lord, this morning. By the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so just, just a few simple points this morning. The first one is this. The way of the Lord is a way of blessing. The way of the Lord is the way of blessing. Or put it another way, humans flourish in God's way. Humans flourish in God's way. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. The way of the Lord is the way of Jesus. When we walk in the way of the Lord, we walk with Jesus. And finally, the way of the Lord is the way of the cross. So let's start with the way of the Lord is the way of blessing. Some background on Psalm 119. It's the longest of the Psalms. So Father Aaron saved the longest for the last. 
It's 176 verses. So we'll spend about three to five minutes on each verse this morning, and we'll just kind of walk through it. There's 22 sections in this psalm. And each section, if you, if you have your Bible, if you look at it, you can see each section here has this different header right there. And those headers are uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. That's what Wikipedia told me. And each section, all of the verses in that section start with that letter of the alphabet. So if we took, like, the letter T and, and wrote, you know, a poem in this form, it'd be, um, Trevor is here this morning, uh, tomorrow he'll be back home, then who knows, um, train, Tom Hanks, the end. <laughs> so that, that's kind of the form he uses, okay? And so he just, he walks through each letter of the alphabet, writing along this form. And, and his theme is always the same. His theme is a love for the law or the way of the Lord. And he, he uses these diff, this different form to kind of do a theme and variations. So with every letter, he needs to come up with a new way to talk about his love for the law of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord. And the law that this poet would have in mind is the law that God gave to the Israelite people, the law of Moses, the ten words, the ten commandments. Now, why, why use a structure like this? Why use such a hard and fast form? If you're an artist in any kind and you like creating things, you know that form is great, but form can also be overbearing. Why use such, such a structured way? And I don't know the answer for sure, but I think there's a few reasons he might have done this. The first is, as I said, it allows him to be repetitive to do this sort of theme and variations on the same theme. But it's also, it's carefully ordered. This, this structure is carefully ordered, and so is the law. The law of God is carefully ordered. And this structure is made up of letters. It, it, it revolves around letters, and letters are this building block, this foundation of language. I think the poet feels the same way about God's law, that his law is a foundation. It's the building blocks of our life. Finally, he goes through every single letter from, in our language, A to Z. It's comprehensive. It's extensive. And I think he feels the same way about the law. This is the A to Z of, of God's law in this passage. And, and the, reason, the reason that God's law is, is ordered and is foundational and is extensive is because God's law flows out of his person. The way of the Lord reflects the person of God. In, later on in this, in this psalm, the, the psalmist says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. And because it is God who has made and fashioned us, he has created us, and then he's created a way, which is a way for our flourishing. The way he created us is in his very image. He put some of himself into us as image bearers. And isn't that an artistic thing to do, to put some of yourself in your, in your best work? Um, my kids uh, gave an example to me of this on Friday. Um, Bonnie and I, we're songwriters, we do some music, and we, we do some recording, and, and we're, pretty, we're pretty chill, and, and so our music ends up being pretty chill, it's kind of acoustic and folky, and, and so my kids and I, we were having a dance party, listening to this band, and it was like this loud dance anthem, and we were dancing to it, and then it stopped, and they're like, another song, another song, and so I thought, oh, well Bonnie and I are working on this new song that's a little bit up-tempo, I'll play them that. So I said, hey, do you guys want to hear a mommy and daddy song? And they said, no. 
No, no, we want a dancing song. See, they know our stuff. They know our style. Because we put some of ourselves into our art. And God puts, puts some of himself into creation. And he, and he makes creation, he makes us in his own image. And then when he thinks about the way for us to flourish, he knows it. Because he made it and he's reflected in it. God's way is the way for human flourishing. In Luke, Jesus says that the very hairs on our head are numbered. It's probably over 100,000 hairs. They're numbered. And, and in Psalm 139, um, the poet says that we've been knit together by God in our mother's womb. God, the lawgiver, is God the creator. He knows us. He knows how he made us. And he has a design for our flourishing. And do, do you see how the poet interacts with God this way? If you read through it, it's all, it's all may I keep your laws and may you teach me. It's relational. It's a conversation between God, the lawgiver, and this poet. And, and we start to see in this why the psalmist is so passionate about the law. Because knowing the law is knowing the lawgiver. Knowing the law is knowing God. And it's a relationship. It's not an abstract document of rules and decrees, but it's, it's our creator's design for our human flourishing. The way of the Lord is the way of blessing. It's the way we were meant to live. The way of the Lord is also the way of Jesus. Now the psalmist, he's talking about the ancient law the Israelites received. But as we read this back, knowing about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can see some prophetic things that are happening in this psalm. I said this poem is the A to Z of the law. And in Revelation, we're told that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the A to Z only in Greek. Jesus is the summation. This psalm urges us to walk in the way of the Lord, and Jesus tells, you, tells us, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. We said the law reveals God's character, and when Jesus comes to earth, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And so law doesn't just mean character of God, but because of the incarnation of Jesus, law is the actual person of God. It's the word of God, the word that God spoke over creation to say, let there be light, and there was light, and he called it good. It's the word that he gave the Israelites, the ten words on Mount Sinai of their ten commandments. But it's also the word of God made flesh who came to dwell among us in the person of Jesus. The way of God is the word of God. It's the person of Jesus. And when we walk in the way of God, we walk with Jesus. Jesus is the living word. And so our scriptures, our Bible is called the word of God. Because these written words tell us about and tell the story of the living word. There's nothing magical in in the ink and the binding and the pages and the print of this book. But there is a person. And that's why it's powerful. And we're promised that when we read this word, when we read of the living word, that the living word is present with us. That it's powerful that, that there's a sharpness to it that can go into our hearts and cut between all of the things we think we want, 
all of those desires that we have and get down to the root of it. And, and then that teaches us what our true desire is. That our true desire is to walk with Jesus in the way of the Lord. That's what the Word of God does. It pierces our heart and it teaches us that. And, and we're told that the Word of God, it never fails. It, it doesn't return without doing what it was meant to do. And that's because the written Word of God testifies to the living Word of God, Jesus, who when He came to this world, He accomplished what He set out to accomplish. He lived a life that completely fulfilled the law. He walked in the way of the Lord. And because He walked in the way of the Lord, and He suffered death on a cross, and He rose again, He made a way for us to enter into the way. And so this word, it never returns without doing what it's supposed to do. Because Jesus did what he did. Because Jesus accomplished it. Because Jesus fulfilled the law. And the power of Jesus to walk in the way of the Lord is the power that lives inside each person who's committed their lives to following Jesus in the way. And so, can you feel the excitement of the poet when he says, I long to study the law, to meditate on it, to digest it, to eat it, to love it. Why? Because it's Jesus. It's the person of God come to make a way for us when there was no way. And so we get the strange passages in the Old Testament like we read this morning where Jeremiah eats the words of God. Or in Ezekiel where God has Ezekiel write down on a scroll and then he crumples the scroll up and he, he eats it. He just he wants to be a part of it. He wants it to be a part of him. And so when we come together and we worship, we worship God and we meet Jesus in the word, read and preached and proclaimed, and then we meet him at the table. And the life of Jesus and the way of Jesus becomes our way. So why don't we walk in the way of the Lord? If it's the way of blessing, where we're meant to, to flourish, if it's the way that's with Jesus, where we walk with Him, why don't we walk in the way? I think, I think our gospel passage this morning uh, gave us a direction of why. Because the way of the Lord is the way of the cross. It's not easy. There's suffering. And there's sacrifice involved. And when we look around at all the other ways that people live, some of them look easier. And for whatever reason, we think that easy must mean right. And hard must mean wrong. We look around and we see other ways that look easier. Like the way of nice things. Of a nice family and job and house and car and just nice things. And that looks good, and those people look happy. So why not follow that way? Or what about the way of all that matters is the fun I have today, that you only live once way, the party like there's no tomorrow way. That way looks happy. But the way of Jesus looks hard. And we start to wonder, what if, what if, the way of the Lord is not the way of flourishing. And we start to doubt. And we, we say, well, maybe, maybe I can follow part of the way. Maybe I'll do the parts of it that are easier, but the harder ones, I'll make up my own way. I'll follow my own way. 
I'll write my own way. But, but remember that the law of God, the way of God, is connected to the person of God. And if we start changing around the way of the Lord to fit our own ways, we're actually changing around what we believe about God. You see how that works? All of a sudden, God goes from being our good creator who wills and wants our flourishing to being a well-intentioned but somewhat, out, somewhat outdated sort of bumbling uncle. He seems nice. He's got some good ideas, but they're pretty antiquated. They don't fit up with the world we live in and the lives we lead. And then he talks about, you know, you read God's law about, you know, anything, about giving to the poor, about serving others with our time, about, about our sexual ethics. And you read and say, well, what, what sexual intimacy is reserved for a husband and wife in marriage and, and everything else is outside of God's way? That's so antiquated. That doesn't seem like it's going to lead to my flourishing. That seems hard. But Jesus teaches us that the way of the Lord is the way of the cross. And there is suffering involved. And it's the kind of suffering that when Brett was here last week, he taught about. The suffering that, that weeds out our false desires. That weeds out our, 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 our brokenness and our sin. And, and focuses us on the one desire that can truly satisfy. Which is Jesus. And so the suffering comes, and so the sacrificial call is made, and we get to choose. Do we believe that following in the way of the Lord is the way of blessedness, and is the way that's with Jesus? Will we follow that? Will we take up our cross and follow Jesus in the way when it's going to hurt? Because we know that the heart of our desire, the heart of our longing, is for Him, and not for anything else. And so you meet Christians who have had everything taken from them and who experience suffering. And they should be depressed. And they should be sad and broken. And I'm not saying they don't have times of sadness and brokenness, but they have joy. Why? Because you can take everything from them if they still have Jesus. And then you meet people who have everything that you would think they would need or I would need or you would need to live a happy, fulfilled, blessed life. And are they happy? Not if they don't have Jesus. The psalmist is urging us and telling us that our true desire, our true prayer of desire is for Jesus and is to walk in the way of the Lord with Jesus. C.S. Lewis has this quote. He's talking about desire. And he says, God turns out to satisfy my original desire and to, to, to reveal an element in it which I did not notice. And that element is this, that a good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, being welcomed into the heart of things, that is the door that we have been knocking on at our whole lives. And that is the door that can be opened. Underneath all of the other desires and wants that we might take into a ontologist's office, it's the Lord that is our deepest desire. And we have all these complicated, interwoven pains and desires, but it's only Jesus. 
It's only being loved by Him. It's only following Him in the way that will truly fulfill those desires. But that is not even the most amazing part of God's love for us. That's not even the most amazing part. I mean, having God tell us that our desires are met in Him and we were created for Him and He wants to fulfill those desires, that's pretty amazing, but that's not even the most amazing part. The most amazing part is this. Not that our desire is for God, but that His desire is for us. That His desire is for us to know us. The God who needs nothing, who is completely um, fulfilled in His life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, decided to create us because He loves us and He wanted us. And when there was no way to be with Him, He came. He came to us to make the way. Because He loves us. And as He walked this life and He fulfilled the law and He died on the cross, what was the joy that was set before Him? It was us. It was returning us to the way. And now... Because he stretched out his arms of love on the cross for us. Because he paved the road for us through his suffering and death, through his resurrection. He invites us to follow. That where he went, we may go also. Through suffering. But through suffering that, that, that as its foundation, as its all-encompassing order, his blessedness in Jesus. Sin has made the way rough, but Jesus has pioneered the way for us. His greatest desire is that we follow him and have all of our desires met in him. Would you pray with me?